Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Slightly Mental Podcast. After a long break, I have started recording the second season, and my guest could not be anybody else but Mr. Steve Carr. Hello, Steve. How are you today? Hi, Sam. I'm really well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me back. And do you know, I, I've got I've got a question straight off the cuff, ready wow. for you. Flipping the roll straight away. Go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when you announced the name of the show, wow, where did that come from? Slightly mental. Oh, oh dear. Um, I wasn't prepared for that. Okay, so <laughs> first of all, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of my sense of humor in that. Um, plus challenging the narrative because I feel like there's a divide that some people the old sort of believe that some people have mental health some people don't we all have mental health the difference is that mm. some people have mental ill health um, but I also feel like we all have uh, that spark of insanity a little bit of craziness within us and um, I would say that we all slightly mental in our own little way which makes us all a unique and individual and interesting. So I just wanted to have a title that will challenge how we look not only at mental health, but also at ourselves and each other. So I think that's a, hmm. that's a suitable title or a name of a podcast, should I say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry to throw that question out straight away. And you probably were not expecting that, but thank you for answering. <laughs> Yeah, no problem. Uh, I mean, before we start, you promised to be nice and not challenge me, but there we go. It, yeah, out, sorry. Out of the window <laughs> straight away. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, okay, really, enough with my question. <laughs> it was a really, really good start. Um, so let me properly introduce you. You are a multiple award, sorry, multiple award-winning mental health first aid uh, instructor. You do a lot of suicide first aid training as well. You do a lot of work in terms of uh, workplace well-being. You also like flying planes. You also like riding bikes and running a lot. A very active person. I would first like to talk about your personal story um, because like most trainers that I've met, you have a personal story uh, with mental health. And my first question would be, where did your challenges start? Oh, gosh. Um, really good question. This all stems for me. Um, my journey into mental health was uh, came about seven years ago when I experienced a mental health breakdown in the workplace. Or so I thought was seven years ago. It actually stems from childhood. Um, I had a fairly traumatic childhood, both emotionally and physically. My parents were both emotionally abusive and physically abusive but also they're emotionally unavailable uh, so for me I didn't really have any understanding of what it was to be heard loved or what I thought was love in the sense that I wanted it um, but also I had no real understanding of what I was experiencing as a child and so I had nobody to talk to I just thought life was this way that it was difficult my parents had difficult upbringing and then it was conditioned into me to live the same kind of life and their beliefs and um how their lives were so it was growing up in poverty we grew up um in a place called swindon and you know it well uh, a place called swindon so, so for those that are listening in it's um it's a small town in between uh sandwiched between bristol and reading um grew up on a council estate with um in a working class family my elder brother paul who was a year older than me young 
younger sister, Claire, was a year younger. And uh, my mum was a stay-at-home housewife. My dad was a car mechanic by trade. And we were no strangers to hardship. Um, I just recall on weekends we'd be dragged to the local tip and my dad would salvage anything that he could repair so you know would often find bicycles radios televisions he was very good with his hands uh, he was very good with electronics so um yeah more often than not you'd find a semi-sprayed television or bike in the kitchen being repaired um but you know what it, it fed us as children and my dad was really resourceful so uh, he would build custom motorbikes, fix people's televisions, cars and things just to get by. Um, a Sunday lunch, we would find we'd be eating it for the next week after that. And, you know, bread and dripping sandwiches and, the, you know, leftovers. And sometimes we'd have lemon curd and even crisp sandwiches. That's the kind of, you know, the uh, uh, upbringing that we had. It was very difficult. Uh, by the age of 14, I'd started associating with children that were like little young people my age um, that were from the same backgrounds. So from either broken homes or from traumatic uh, experiences, we all kind of had the same thing in common. We were in some kind of pain and some kind of suffering. Um, and by the age of 14, I had uh, found drugs. I'd been introduced to drugs and started using uh, marijuana just as a way of being able to cope, really. It was, it was an escape more than anything else, but also to self-medicate some of this pain that I was experiencing um, as a young adult. And so that was my start of my journey into using, um, using illegal drugs. And this continued all the way up, well, it continued for most of my adult life until I was actually 39, which was um, just six years ago. I smoked from the age of 14, took drugs and drank at a very young age. And um, at the age of 39, it all came to a head. But before that, um, an event that uh, that has just passed, the anniversary of it has just passed, was um, sadly the death of my elder brother, in 1991 who was killed in the freak car accident by a drink driver along with five other children um the accident in question was the acres way accident in swindon where five children were sat on a bench and uh sadly were killed by two drink drivers who thought it'd be a you know an idea to drive home after having a few drinks which resulted in the death of five children at the time sadly there was no help um, available that my dad wanted to accept you know we look back even just five years ago could we have that conversation about mental health like we are having now quite openly absolutely not um and so you know back in 1991 which was what 30 31 years ago um it's not the kind of thing that we could have so my dad was in fear of you know being looked at that he was weak he was a very proud man he himself didn't know how to ask for help and so as a result of that, us children, myself and my younger sister, sadly, we couldn't get the help that we needed at the time either. So not being able to talk about that traumatic event or let alone process it had its repercussions later on in life. 
which at the age of 39, all the unhelpful coping strategies and masking and techniques that I was using um, finally came to a head, finally came to a head when I experienced the mental health breakdown or crisis in the workplace, which ultimately led me to attempt to end my life by suicide just less than a month later. Wow. Um as a result of those, um, you're very open about that, as a result of all those problems in childhood and growing up, you have been diagnosed with quite a few conditions, haven't you? Yeah, so when I eventually asked for help, uh, the first thing that I was met with was a, a positive response, and I think that made all of the difference. As soon as I was able to muster the courage to speak about my mental health, I thought that it would be met with the standard response of, oh, well, you know, there's an X amount of waiting list, don't really believe you, can't see it, so it's not real, that kind of thing, um, which sadly is fairly common, but also prevents people from asking for help. Mm -hmm. My experience was completely different to this. The very first thing my GP said to me when I asked for the help was, thank you. And it's those two words, those two words that were so powerful that changed the course of my recovery journey. Now, it wasn't always that easy and simple and straightforward after seeing my GP, but because of my GP, it enabled me then to go and get further help. So it was within a month or so that I gained a diagnosis of PTSD, high function anxiety, work-related stress, depression, unresolved childhood trauma and addiction all in one go. Um, so it was a lot to deal with, but for me, it didn't dictate who I was and it didn't say, well, okay, well, you've now got this diagnosis. This is who you are. It actually enabled me to say, I've got the diagnosis. Now I know how to manage the symptoms of the diagnosis. So I didn't let it, you know, control me or who I was or what I did. If anything, it allowed me to explore where did it come from in the first place? How did that happen? How can I recover from this holistically? Which is a really good approach. I think a lot of people, when they get a mental health diagnosis, they identify with the diagnosis. My experience was that very often people will resist help and even feel like you're attacking them when you when you try to help them. I know uh, my journey started with uh, teaching people about anxiety and I wanted to reach out to a group of people and even coach them uh, for free personally. And a lot of people will be just very defensive, like I wanted to take something away from them. They identify with the condition so strongly. Yeah. Um, if you feel comfortable, I would like to ask you about um, um, your suicide attempt. Um, mm. If I correctly um, uh, remember, you have used cocaine, is that correct? Yeah, I did. So cocaine was my drug of choice. Um, what I'll say and I'll express at this point is because of, um, I, I'm unsure of where your listeners are with their mm -hmm. journeys, I won't go into any explicit details of what, how or when or yeah. why, just quite simply because um, I don't think people need to know the what, how or when or why, yeah, yeah. but I, I will just say it did involve drugs and it involved a lot of alcohol, um, but I won't go into specifics just because, uh, just being mindful of, yeah. you know, triggering anyone else. I think, you know, just knowing that somebody like myself had attempted suicide, I think that's, you know, I think that's enough that people need to know. 
Yeah, totally. I agree. I agree. Um, what would you say were the things that were key in your recovery, things that help you the most? Mm. It's a really good question, this, and it's something that I very rarely get an opportunity to discuss. Um, for me, first of all, it was being believed. So it was having that belief from my GP. So she validated my experience, feelings and thoughts just by thanking me. So this was enough, just having somebody thank me. Secondly, it was knowing somebody that would believe me. So my journey of recovery um, actually started in a church. Um, and it was this. My rationale behind this was if I could tell people in the church what happened, maybe I can then ask for forgiveness within the church, be forgiven for all of the things that I'd put through, put people through as well, because I wasn't, you know, it wasn't as straightforward as me just taking drugs. I hurt a lot of people. And mm -hmm. I know this. Um, and I needed to ask for forgiveness from them and, you know, them from other people. And I thought, where's the best place to do this? And for me, it started in church. So I remember on my uh, my third suicide attempt, I said, if I survive this one, I'll start praying to God and I'll start going to church and I will start uh, asking for forgiveness. So basically what I was doing at this point, unbeknown to me, there's something called a 12 step program which mm -hmm. is uh, for anybody that's in recovery. So uh, is mainly used for people that have been drinking um, for anybody in recovery. And what I was unaware of was this was one of the 12 steps was asking for forgiveness. And so I was applying the 12 steps before even being aware of what the 12 steps were. So my journey started with somebody allowing me to be heard. So they allowed me to be heard. And then from there on, it, became a little bit easier with asking for help because I thought, well, if these guys listen, if these people listen, <clears throat> surely everybody will. And this is where my journey began in the church. But also I thought, well, maybe if I go and speak to lots of different people across the entire country, and that's where the walk in England, uh, the entire length of Britain, Land's End, John O'Groats come from. I thought, well, if I can ask for different forms of help from different people let's go and see what help is out there let's go and see why people can't access this help let's go and see if there's other steves out there with voices that are not being heard the silent sufferers as it were and go and raise awareness for mental health and homelessness it's coming from a guy you know how difficult it can be mm. because from a very young age we're conditioned especially when we fall over or hurt ourselves what do our parents lovingly say I just shrug it off and keep going. Come on. Stop yeah, crying. There's no nothing to cry about. Yeah. If you want, I'll give you something to cry about. <laughs> that's actually what my mum said to me. Um, interestingly enough, I'll tell you a quick story around this. Um, so my brother and I are playing with a tennis ball in the back garden and we're throwing this tennis ball to each other. And we're about seven years old. We're playing ball in the back garden, and all that separated the two gardens was about a foot high of chicken wire. Oh, yeah, we were not posh. We didn't have fences. So anyway, uh, my brother's thrown me this boy. He's gone into the next door neighbor's garden. And the next door neighbor used to throw and smash glass bottles in the garden before they moved out. So anyway, all this glass in next door neighbor's garden. I've gone to get the ball that's in the neighbor's garden. Forgotten about the chicken wire and tripped over and fell into my next door neighbor's garden. Anyway, I've fallen in and literally fallen on the shard of glass. 
So there's this shard of glass hanging out my hand. Seven-year-old Steve, carefully, mind you, goes back into the garden, steps over the chicken wire, into the kitchen where mum is, blood everywhere, bawling my eyes out, crying, mum, mum, look, look. So mum elevates my hand, gets a kitchen sink plug, pops it into the kitchen sink, starts to run warm water. Then she grabs my hand and yanks the piece of glass out. Absolute tears, floods everywhere. And my mum said this to me. She said, seven-year-old Steve, crying, blood everywhere. She said, stop crying or, what was it you said? I give you something to cry about. Yeah, yeah. like I didn't have enough mum. Yeah. Um, so there was mum at seven years of age telling me not to cry. So that's exactly what I did. Uh, stop crying. And from yeah. that age onwards, I began to mask everything, the pain. And every time that I wanted to cry, because I was told, big boys don't cry. I'll yeah. stop crying. I'll give you something to cry about. And it's incredible. Recently, I got interested more about trauma and how actually experiences in the childhood that might seem like they're meaningless will have a serious effect on us as adults. Because I see a lot of stuff uh, for myself and even my mother, I love her to bits, but she was working 24-7 to make sure that we survive. And you have to sacrifice one thing for another. So you didn't get attention from a party, didn't get, you know, you have not been heard. You had no opportunity to, to talk about your emotions and stuff. So it's incredible how something that's seemingly trivial by somebody who's an adult for a child is a big deal and, and it can create trauma and, and more serious problems in, in the adulthood. You mentioned your yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned your trip from one end of UK to the other. How long did that take you to walk? Yeah, 90 days in total, three months, uh, wild camping, just sleeping in a sleeping bag. Um, more often than not, I would wake up and the tent would be frozen. So I'd have to wait until it like warmed up. I remember when I got down to Penzance and I was walking along, um, it was Fishtral Beach. And I'm walking along Fistral Beach and I see this really flat piece of land. And I thought, wonderful, that sounds looks like a pretty good place to pitch the tent. I'll pitch it up. So I put my tent up, bearing in mind it's about 11 o'clock at night, hammering down with rain and it's cold. It's uh, the beginning of, it was around, it's February, sometime in February. I think it was the beginning of February that I did start the walk, beginning of February, March, April. Yeah, for beginning of February. So it's still cold, very bitterly cold. It's raining. And all I wanted to do was get out of this wet gear that I'm in. So I see this flat piece of land, wonderful picture tent. So I'm in the tent, freezing, cold. And um, I don't know whether I was shivering from the withdrawal from all the, the drugs or whether it was cold I can't work it out um, but either way I was shivering anyway um it was about six o'clock the next morning and it stopped raining but there was a mist uh just covering this land and I got out of the tent and had a look around and I see this figure walking towards me I thought six o'clock in the morning wow who'd be up in this it was like pitch black He's walking towards me and I'm starting to pack the tent up. And he said, uh, excuse me, sir, uh, what are you doing? I said, oh, just packing my tent up. And he said, uh, do you know where you are? Uh, Fistral Beach. He went, nearly. He said, you're on the golf course, a Fistral golf course. 
I said, I wondered why this land was really flat. And he said, yeah, you might want to leave pretty quick. So they're teeing off short. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. I was on a golf course. <laughs> Unbelievable. So but you it was were... flat. Yeah, perfect. A nice grass, <laughs> I, I would assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Absolutely. You were walking by a golfer. Have you ever been walking up by a, a, a wild animal on your trip? Oh, gosh, yeah. More often than not. Actually, probably not woken up, but kept awake by wild <laughs> animals. Um, there's this, there were some absolutely amazing experiences. You know, the, one of the very first nights, it was um, there's a dual carriageway right down at the end by Penzance. Um, and um, I camped on the dual carriageway, literally next to it. There was a dip in, just next to the dual carriageway. And I thought, well, I'll just camp here right next to it. Really bad idea. Really bad idea because a the traffic, but um, b it was in a dip and it rained that night, so mm. got a little bit wet. Another uh, another one that um, almost sounds amazing. I romanticised this was camping on the beach. I thought that would be amazing. Let's camp on the beach. I would not recommend it to anybody, especially if it's shingled beach. <laughs> Oh my gosh, try and pitch a tent on a shingled beach and then listening to that all night, the waves crashing and coming back and forth was not my idea of heaven. <laughs> I can imagine that was probably not the most comfortable uh, ground to lie on either. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was absolutely not. If you've ever tried laying on a shingled beach, then oh my gosh, you'll know just how painful that was. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine. Have you had any scary stories during that 90 days? Anything that stands um, out? Uh, there was a story of the very first night, not so much scary, but more more tragic, I think. Okay. Um, just before I went away on the walk, there was um, I got I was connected with somebody that worked at um, Shore Trust, and what she did at Shore Trust was she enabled people that experienced poor mental health and mental illness a pathway to back into work, so they would gain the relevant skills uh, to go back into the workplace. And I remember delivering a talk, letting them know that I was going to walk Lands End to John O'Groats, and. Um, she said that's absolutely amazing given what you just experienced do you mind if we keep in touch and i said yeah absolutely so we kept in touch and um i remember I, I left that night and um i said i'll contact you monday to let you know how i get on how we start and we spoke um on the friday so anyway i'm down in penzance on the beach on the shingle beach in um and i get my first very first tent um and it wasn't a very good tent because um i get my very first tent out of its packaging and within minutes i put the poles straight through the tent and it had ripped so very first night i'm in a tent that is the equivalent of a crisp packet and it's broken so um i then get caught it's about 10 o'clock in the evening i get a call from uh somebody that is helping support me uh, that was helping support me on the journey. It was a mutual friend of um, the woman in question called Sabrina, who I met for Sure Trust. And he said, um, Steve, uh, where are you? And I said, down in Penzance. And he said, um, you'll need to sit down. I said, oh, okay, uh, what is it? And he said, it's Sabrina. He said, sadly, she had a heart attack earlier on this evening and she passed away. Now, 
the worst thing about that was she was only 36 years of age wow. and um it was a really tragic way to start the walk with the bad news that somebody that i'd met a couple of weeks before she had been really ill she had been really ill but um experienced a heart attack and i believe that she was with me and looking over me for the entirety of that journey um because there was many events on that journey where you know i got hit by a car at one point not excessive speed but still hit by a car um i had frozen most nights you know downturn minus two or three and i survived it you know most people would go you know what i'll find a hotel yeah um, and i probably would now if i'm honest but is it what, what what amazes me sam is how much we can not just only put our bodies through but what our minds will allow us to do mm. and what we're capable of you know if you said to me now steve do we want to go and walk britain with me it might dip down to minus three you might freeze you're going to absolutely soak through you're going to have to carry a 25 kilogram backpack what do you reckon sam i'd say mm. no <laughs> i would say no yeah but isn't it amazing though when you think about where you do you have to be mentally to do that challenge most people that are mentally well wouldn't do that challenge let alone just being diagnosed with you know everything that i've just been diagnosed with but it just goes to show doesn't it how far we can push ourselves when need be yeah i totally agree with you i also think that there is something really magical almost about those moments where all that daily bs and comfort is stripped that's why people go climbing extreme mountains and stuff because this life is very simple then isn't it it's just you against the nature and all you think about is surviving the next day surviving the next step um so yeah. in a way things are much simpler maybe not more comfortable but much simpler um once i you... think we complicate it yeah oh totally and i, I think, think we complicate it yeah, and I think life is more and more complex these days, isn't it? Including, you know, social mm -hmm. media and having access to each other 24-7 and so on. I think I think just things have changed a lot. So once you have completed your walk, what happened then? What have you done then? Um, so after I completed the walk, I wrote a report on my findings and what I found were inadequacies within the mental health services for people like myself that had experienced a dual diagnosis. Where were the gaps? And it was generally in education funding. Um, so I wrote a report and uh, of my findings, but also where there was a lack of funding in the um, mental health services for people to access it, but to get the help they needed early on. And again, it just came down to funding. So my thought around this was, well, maybe I need to go and show officials what I thought were officials at the time that had um, any form of control over this, which were government. So I wrote a report on my findings, evidenced it, and um, I walked it from my hometown of Swindon to number 10 Downing Street and had a conversation with David Cameron, who was a prime minister at the time, to see what he could do to um, to change this dire situation that people were experiencing. 
um, to this day, it's still ongoing work that many of us, including yourself, are lobbying for. It's what we do every single day to help others. Um, but sadly, we see this as it will be something for the government to change. But more and more people are realizing this is something that we can do at an individual level. And this mm. is, you know, this is why we do what we do is to help people, to show people that more often than not, we need to help ourselves. And as painful as that may sound, you know, if somebody has said to me at the time, you need to help yourself, I declined that because I didn't know how to help myself. But we need to be able to show people that, A, you know, asking for help isn't about giving up, it's about not giving up. But also recovery is highly likely and possible if we mm. get that early prevention. I totally agree. And, and I agree also that a big part of recovery is learning to look after yourself. That pretty much saved my life when I realized when I had my crisis um, seven or so years ago as well, when I couldn't stop drinking, I went to the hospital and I was hoping that I'd be welcomed with a bunch of flowers. I'll stay there for three days, eat a fruit salad, and then I'll be pumped with vitamins. And, uh, you know, three days later, I'll go home happy, but that didn't happen. And then I realized that nobody's coming to save me and I have to learn how to save myself and ask for help as well. So I think I think it's a big part. Uh, would you say that's why the mental health first aid courses are so popular and so good as well? Yeah, I think the reason why the, uh, my belief is that they're so popular is because everyone can access it everyone can access mental health and um it gives people a better a basic understanding of what some of the most common mental health issues are and mm. um, today has been wonderful news that there's a new release of the mental health first aid course which enables people now to get a better understanding of it but also there's uh, some wonderful videos in there of how to have the conversation how a conversation would unfold but also how to support somebody through that conversation because uh, previously it was just showing people what mental health issues were there um, and how to use something called their algae action plan which is their mm -hmm. framework what they use how to approach how to assess assist listen and communicate give support and information and encourage the person to get professional help and other help which is a wonderful framework but now they're showing you actually how to do that so not only uh, we got case studies in there but we've got great videos to watch and there's also now um a support app a support app that you can be part of for three years which helps to support the mental health first aider within their role also shows you about creating healthy boundaries and knowing your limitations and this is really really important work for all of us knowing your limitations knowing that we're not mental health professionals but giving people enough skills to say what can i do on a first aid basis so this person can then get the proper professional help so people need to be aware this will not make you a mental health professional but it will give you the skills to administer that first aid response before they get the appropriate mm -hmm. professional help i think it's a really valid and very important point because from from delivering courses i see that people quite often are quite anxious about being specifically able to say that somebody is going through anxiety or depression because the uh, the feeling is that i need to know what is going on for them to know how to help them but actually 
you only need to know that they are going through something and being recognized that maybe that's it and not diagnose somebody. Mm. Um, what, thinking about um, the feedback from your attendees, your your learners, what are the most common and the biggest takeaways they, they get from, from those courses? Yeah, it's a, a great question. And it's confidence. More often than not, it's the confidence to know what to say, to have that conversation, to know that they don't need to have all the answers. The thing with mental health is this, that most people just want to be heard. Mm. So we don't need to be professionals. We don't need to have all the answers. All we need to do is to be able to listen. And when I say listen, that's not listen to respond or offer an unwanted opinion or a solution. It's actually to say, thank you for sharing that with me. And again, most people, again, more often than not, just want to be heard. So if we keep it simple by saying thank you, always thank the person for sharing their, their journey of their, their mental health. But also then, if you're unsure, or if any of the listeners are unsure, ask this following three closed questions, which are, again, thank them and say, what would you like me to do with what you've just told me? Would you like me to just listen? Would you like me to escalate it? Or would you like me to help you create a plan to get the help you need? Because by doing so, you give that then back to them. And remember, we're not offering an opinion or a solution and saying what works for us, because that would be like me saying, Sam, I heard you going through a really bad time. Why don't you go and walk England? It's, you know, what worked for me won't necessarily work for you. Yeah. So what we do by saying this is they might not know that they have those options. So if we say, what would you like me to do with what you've just told me? More often than not, people will say this. Nothing. Just wanted you to listen. Mm. And that's it. I think I think that's a big part of it, just holding the space and allowing somebody to talk about their experience and um even giving the time so they can consider. Because when we talk about our experience, then it in a way it's laid out in front of us and it's easy to understand what am I actually experiencing? What am I going through? I think that's why that's why coaching industry had such a big explosion, let's say such a big growth in recent years in UK because you're paying somebody for an hour or whatever the time is to listen and ask open question and you know understand what you're going through and potentially help you through skillful questioning find a way forward it's not about giving advice and it's not about telling you what to do um you also do a lot of uh, suicide first aid trainings um what i came across is that people are quite often afraid to talk to somebody who's suicidal uh because of the fear that they might push somebody over the edge with what they say. Is that the case? Uh, that is the case for a lot of people, but is it the truth? No, it's a myth. Hmm. So by asking somebody that isn't thinking about suicide, are you thinking about suicide? We will not put the idea into their head. Yeah. But again, if we're asking somebody that is thinking about suicide, are you thinking about suicide? They won't go, well, actually, yes, I am. And yes, I'm going to do it. Um, suicide is very complex and it has a, a, a history to it. So it doesn't, it's very rare that it happens for a single event or factor. So it's very complex and, and it's a complex interplay of biological, psychological, current life events, past life events yeah. um, that lead a person to start thinking about suicide. I think the misconception also is this, is that 
people are getting confused with thoughts of suicide and suicide actions. Now, 3.4 to 5% of the population roughly will be having thoughts of suicide. So that's roughly about one in 20 people. It doesn't mean every single one of those people will act on the thoughts. Mm -hmm. So what we're asking people there is, are you having thoughts of suicide? And again, you know, there's a, 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 there's a common misconception around wording as well. We think about, is somebody suicidal? What does that mean? It means that we're asking the wrong question here. It's not suicidal. It means, is that person having thoughts of suicide? You think about that for a second. Is the person suicidal? What does that mean? Does that mean they're having thoughts of suicide? So we need to actually be thinking about what we're asking there. Is if that person's suicidal, does that mean that they're displaying a suicide behaviour, mm -hmm. which then could possibly mean that they're going to act on the thoughts? So we need to think thoughts of suicide completely different to a suicide action. What would you say from experience and experience of delivering these courses, what are the most common um, misconceptions that people have about suicide when they when they come to learn about it? Again, it's exactly what you said there, Sam, is that by asking a person that's not thinking about suicide, that will put that idea into their head. It is a myth. You know, it, it's I'll, I'll give you um, what I'll give you. I share with you something that we share within the course, which is this. If I was to ask you if you would like to give me 98% of your salary every month for the next six years, what would you say? Probably not. <laughs> Unless <laughs> that's an investment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. I'm, I'm glad you didn't say yes, because this could have gone horribly wrong. Um, but what we're trying to say at this point is we're giving an example of by me asking you something, I can't A, put that idea into your head, yeah, and B, yeah. you won't act on what I tell you to say, or what I tell you or ask you. Um, it's the same with suicide. What we are doing by saying that word suicide is simply A, breaking the stigma that's attached to it, and saying to that person, B, we're comfortable with talking about it. C, you can talk to me about it, because I'm comfortable with saying and hearing about suicide. Yeah, so people have a common misconception about the training that we're talking, you know, doom and gloom, that we're all talking all negativity about the course. In fact, it's, you know, A, we don't talk about methods or means around suicide, but what we do talk about is how to actually have a conversation with somebody that's having thoughts of suicide. Because if we're leaving it until the point where that person is then acting out their plan, you know, they could be on a bridge or whatever it is that, that they're doing, um, that we're potentially leaving it too late. Mm -hmm. Because in the majority of suicides, there are early signs that the person is thinking about suicide. More often than not, that person will tell you, consciously or unconsciously, they're in some kind of pain. And it's for us to understand what those early signs are. Mm -hmm. So until, um, if I remember correctly, 1961, um, the word commit suicide, uh, sorry, so very often the phrase commit suicide is used and have been used historically because in, in past days, suicide have been a crime which is uh, i can't even grasp that concept uh, you, you know your life is crumbling into pieces you try to end your life you don't succeed and you go to prison 
how stupid mm. and now now we are trying to change that narrative change the way we we talk about suicide and mental health why language around suicide and mental health is so important yeah um and it really is you know going back to prior to 1961 the belief was that you know that if a person tried to end their life it was a crime and i think that was really to deter people away from doing it because they simply didn't know how to cope or manage or speak or talk to anybody that wanted to end their life by suicide so what's the easiest way we don't want people to die so let's make it illegal for them to die that was the belief however um you know the, the the language that we used around it is stuck so people used to say commit suicide like commit a crime and it insinuates that it's illegal and that was actually one of the reasons why that prevented me from getting the help that i needed and wanted was simply because my belief was that it was illegal so i didn't tell anyone why would i it was, it was you know his class is illegal um but i didn't know this so we need to make it common knowledge that a it was decriminalized in 1961 but b using that word commit insinuates that it's illegal and adds to the stigma attached to suicide yeah. another word that we shy away from now is the word completed mm. just quite simply because completed makes it sound like it was something on a to-do list or you know that it was an achievement achievement yeah here's the thing what happens when somebody fails at the attempt what are they seeing themselves as there a failure yeah. what's the likelihood of somebody that already feels hopeless and helpless about life reaching out for help now knowing that they're also a failure yeah totally and i hate the word complete as well because it, 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 yeah first of all it feels like you have achieved something but also the, my first thought goes into games like you, you're you're completing another level another assignment i hate that so I shy away mm. from that as well. Um, and commit stuck so much. I can I can see even people who are in um, you know even doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists in social media, they still use it because it's so ingrained deeply in us. And I think that's why um, it's so important the work that you do, for example, with courses that we put a, a emphasis on that. What would you say would be the best steps to support somebody who is suicidal? What advice would you give to somebody who might come across somebody who is suicidal? So if somebody was to come across somebody that is thinking about suicide is to be open, honest, listen and care yeah. um, and ask them what's making you think about suicide and get, allow that person to explain, allow them to tell you what's going on. Now, this might be extremely difficult to listen to because it's you know more more often than not again we're not conditioned or we're conditioned not to ask the question but we're also conditioned not to hear or listen to the response because then we think well that then becomes our problem yeah. but it's not it's you know it's not for us to solve people aren't problems to be solved but they are there to be heard so what our job is is a to learn the early signs but also learn how to listen to somebody without taking on knowing that it doesn't solely become our issue we need to be working in partnership with other organizations and knowing where to signpost and 
take that person to should they need that professional help but i'd say be honest be open be willing to listen to that person if they're telling you they're thinking about suicide i say most people that are thinking about suicide won't act on the thoughts so at this stage we're actually all we're trying to figure out is what's causing you to think about suicide always think about what's the pain behind the thought it's a really good way to think about it and what would you say to somebody who actually have those thoughts now and they are quite serious okay we take every single one as serious if somebody was to tell me are they serious and i again what i'd like to find out from that person is a thank you for sharing that with me that must be really difficult i want you to know that there is help out there what can we do now a to keep you safe where did those thoughts come from and what can i do to help support you nice thank you um i want to ask you about workplace well-being specifically what do you think businesses are missing or not doing well in your opinion when it comes to workplace well-being it is understanding the individual because we are each individuals now we could put a bowl of fruit out there offer a gym membership but that's only going to hit a certain demographic or certain specific people not everybody wants to go to the gym or likes fruit what we yeah. need to understand is what works well for the individual so uh, i'll give you an example of this something that i use with organizations are the um wellness the bespoke wellness action plans just quite simply because then it allows organizations to understand what the individuals need so what we do here is create the plan with the individual with the organization so the organization knows that let's say you know if i needed a thursday off because i've got you know that i go to church or whatever it is that i do but i can make the time up and it makes me happy and it keeps me happy and it keeps me well or you know that i've got appointments uh, that, that i can't miss have to take the children to school at certain times you know those kind of flexibility it's those kind of things those that reasonable adjustments that organizations can make um, and understanding what do we need to do let's say if steve becomes unwell what does he do to look after his own mental health and well-being well steve has told us that he goes to the gym that he goes out running that he watch uh, you know films at night has a bath you know the hot bath what does he like to do and then if i do become unwell it's what can the organization do to support me back to doing those things but also make reasonable adjustments for now so that is a well-being strategy it tends to work really well because then we get to know the individual and this needs to be done right from the onset of employment so on the onboarding process people need to know it's you know we go through and watch these videos on manual handling and lifting mm -hmm. health and safety yeah it needs to be incorporated into health and safety because this is the health and safety of the individual not the health and safety of the organization protecting themselves making sure that you don't slip up or have an accident but what the organization needs to do is what they need to do for your health and safety so we're telling them it's a two-way street mm. and i think i think the conversation when you go for a job interview has changed drastically because people are not only ask, asking about how much money i can make but what are you actually doing apart from me coming here doing the work how do you look after your employees do you have any other programs i can get involved in sustainability and uh, global warming stuff like that 
Um, so I think it's a very important uh, part of um, um, workplace um, culture. Um, you have recently been diagnosed with ADHD yourself, which you're very open about. Was that a surprise for you? Oh, gosh, no surprise at all. <laughs> I kind of knew it. Um, you know, after walking England, I, I didn't stop there. I, you know, I, I ran up Snowdonia, which you know is, you've been up recently. Yeah. Uh, ran up Snowdonia, back down the other side, up Copper Mountain, because um, I got lost uh, in one day. Ran to Buckingham Palace from Swindon and back. Cycled from Liverpool to Land's End in a matter of days. Cycled from... Um, uh, Barcelona to Paris in seven days you know I've done many things that the average person would just look at and go I'll give that a miss <laughs> um, but you know there were things for me that just didn't add up and I thought I've got all the signs and symptoms of ADHD here and so I went for the assessment and he said um, yeah you've got it quite severe which was and it, uh, um, he marked me as six out of ten um, on the scale so for me it was I welcomed the diagnosis again you know initially it hit me because I was like oh actually it's now I've got that that's real um, but now it's enabled me to understand more about me what do I like doing what do I not like doing what overwhelms me what do I do when I get exhausted what do I need to look at dietary wise what do I need to look at on my fitness regime all of these things that keep me well keep me well so it's going to the gym every day eating good food being around people that will challenge me not being too challenged with mundane tasks like admin um but you know doing the things that I enjoy and that's okay because that keeps me well and this was part of that well-being action plan was creating that for me initially was to let other people know what I need to do to keep me well and it really worked well because then people could understand what I need and support me with it. So having this diagnosis was was very welcomed. So would you consider um, or are you considering any medications for your ADHD? I considered it um, and then I declined it just quite okay. simply because um, one, I didn't want to put anything else into my body that I was unaware of. Could it help? Yeah, possibly. Um, am I prepared to take that risk, um, knowing with what I'd previously been through with addiction and the medication I've been told is addictive by the practitioner? So I've declined medication. Um, not that I'm saying that it's a bad thing. Uh, you know, if some people want medication, that's fine. It isn't for me. And I would prefer to deal with this, the, the symptoms holistically. So, you know, quite often I'll need to check my blood pressures. I'll need to consider what I'm eating. I need to consider my environment and be more conscious about conscious living as opposed to take medication and then, you know, suffer with the side effects. Um, so it's a controlled drug and they said that it is very addictive so I've declined with my history of taking drugs I didn't want to risk it and you know what I've got to a good place now I have my ups and down days like most people I struggle um, but nowhere near as bad as what I did and I don't want it to unbalance the mm. way things are for me right now. That's a really good perspective. And as you said, I think it's a very personal choice. And I also think the part of ADHD is um, 
being prone to addictions, isn't it? Because you're looking for those dopamine hits, you're looking for that stimulation. So it's a tricky subject, the, the medication. Um, what are the key things that you do on a daily basis to keep your well-being level uh, uh, where it should be, let's say, or uh, your well-being on a good level, should I say? Um, so my well-being strategy and something that I do every single day, I have lots of non-negotiables, which is um, every morning I'll get up and um, I'll start by having a pint of water. Um, then I will go to the gym religiously every single morning, uh, just quite simply because it's now routine, but it's a routine that's kept me well. And that's where I get that dopamine hit from. Um, so for me, it is get up, go to the gym, and then generally I'll come in, deliver training or work up until the afternoon. Um, I don't always work all the way throughout the day. I split it up because I get energy spikes, energy surges. So when I get a, um, an energy uh, spike, I'll go with it. I'll hyper-focus, get lots of work done, but then it can leave me feeling drained for a couple of hours. So um, I've just got my sofa down there in the back and I sometimes just uh, just have a nap on that for a couple of hours and then go again it's um it's uh yeah it's um it's just learning when you're up to work with it and when you're down to rest so for me the non-negotiables are going to the gym spending time out in nature so i'll go out for a walk with friends i'll go out with my partner we'll talk about what's happened in our day and offload so not everything is stored in my head so mm -hmm. we'll often talk about what's gone on offload it then get on with the rest of our evening day, watch a film, watch something funny, have a bath. More often than not, most nights I'll just chill out in the bath for half an hour. Um, and again, just watch something funny and then um, just get try to get a good night's sleep. It's difficult with ADHD mm. though, because it's uh, the whole getting off to sleep thing. But, you know, I prioritize my well-being over everything else. And I fit everything else into around that strategy of if I look after me, everything else looks after itself. Oh, so uh, that's a quote. That's a quote. <laughs> that's I think a, it is. If I look after me, everything else looks after itself. Nice. Nice. You'll see that on Facebook tonight. Yeah, you will. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Fantastic, Steve. I can, I have a feeling that we could talk about um, your journey, your story, and what you do now for hours and hours. We had this conversation previously for two hours, and I felt like we just, we just touched the surface because he's such an interesting person. Um, and a big inspiration to myself because I, I have similar journey. Um, thank you for for your time today. Um, what I what I wanted to ask you now, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you to do some work with you, maybe invite you as a trainer or speaker, what is the best way to find you? Um, I'm primarily on LinkedIn, um, so they can find me on LinkedIn, Steve Carr, um, or you can just drop me a direct email, steve at mindcanyon.co.uk, or check out my website, www.mindcanyon.co.uk. And I just want to leave your uh, people with um, this message, and it's this. Asking for help isn't about giving up. It's about not giving up. Another quote. You'll see it tomorrow on Facebook and LinkedIn. <laughs> it's a very important message. My good sir, I appreciate you very much. Thank you again for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you. And hopefully we'll have a chance to see each other in person very, very soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. All the best. Take care. Thank you.